0: first Peter chapter 1 verse 14 and if you're here and you don't have a Bible that is fine the text the whole text is there in the order of worship if you'd like to follow it there first Peter 1 verse 14 and if you're visiting just to let you know what we're doing this is uh, it's one of the later books in the New Testament this is written by the same guy named Peter that you meet in the Gospels he was one of the 12 apostles, 12 disciples. He was very close to Jesus. And we have two of his letters in the New Testament. So this is the first one. And we're still fairly early in a series. So uh, chapter 1, verse 14. Picture this. Picture if you got a call from a friend and a friend said, can you come over and talk with me? I'm, I'm just really hurting about some things right now. Really agonizing. And so you went over to be with your friend, and your friend just opened up and kind of spilled his or her guts about what they're hurting about. And then after listening to that, what if you said, "Um, well, listen, you know, while I'm here, I'm glad we can kind of kill two birds with one stone because I've been wanting to talk to you about your bad language. I I think if you were on the receiving end of that, you would think, that's not a really peachy keen sense of timing. You know, like, I called you because I'm hurting, and I wanted to talk about what I'm hurting about, and you're, you're bringing me up short on a moral, uh, you know, moral, uh, how I fall short. The reason I bring that up is to say, I want you to remember that the text that we're about to read is from a letter. Now, it is from the Word of God, but the genre is, this is from an actual, real letter by Peter, To recipients in modern day Turkey, in Asia Minor, and they're Gentiles. And something that we've already talked about is that it becomes very apparent as you keep reading through this letter that they are suffering. This theme of suffering is a big deal in this letter. And what Peter is about to bring up is you need to be holy, you need to be different. In the way that you live. Now, my question is this. Is that bad timing on his part? Here are people who are hurting. Maybe their property's being confiscated. Maybe they've been physically assaulted. Or, or someone they know has been killed because they believe in Jesus. And he's coming and saying, hey, I want you to obey God's commandments. Is this crummy timing? And here's what I want you to think about that Peter is saying, if you're going to not just make it through suffering, not just survive, but if you're going to thrive and really have a sense of joy in the midst of suffering, not just despite it, but in the midst of it, that is going to manifest itself in how you actually live. And I want you to think about this. One of the reasons that, as, as a preacher... I'm very, very hesitant to stand up in front of you and and, and quote statistics to you about moral uh, shortcomings of Christians is because, from what I can see, that doesn't change anybody. Preachers are are prone to stand before people and talk about, well, you know what? Um, You know, over here you got this thing called the tithe, you know, give 10% of your gross to God, but all the tax records and all the statistics say that for Bible-believing Christians in the United States, it's more like 2%. Okay, that statistic has been quoted for probably half a century and it's changing nothing. Nothing. And and you could apply it just almost anywhere, you know, the divorce rate or uh, what kind of pop culture we inject. just wherever you want to aim it. The quoting of shortcomings is not changing people. Now, that's the that's the discouraging thing. Here's the encouraging thing. Peter, as he spurs people who are suffering on to be different, to be distinct, actually gives you something that can really motivate you. It's not just, well, here's what we're doing wrong, so let's do right. It's something that could actually make you want to do the very thing He's exhorting us to do. 1 Peter 1, starting in verse 14. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as He who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through Him are believers in God, who raised Him from the dead and gave Him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father and our God, please, we pray. Like the psalmist says, dig out ears for us. And we know that there are preoccupations and our own sin or our indifference or fatigue right now that has blocked up our ears. And we pray that You'll dig them out so that we hear You. It's You that we've come to hear. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, before, before we go any further in looking at this text, just let's make sure that we're all on the same page about one word in particular. And that's the word holy. Uh, all kinds of different backgrounds in the room. I don't know how that word strikes you. But the word holy, it could mean a, a bunch of different things to you. It could come across to you like uh, moral or sort of traditional values or family values. It could mean sort of self-righteous, like someone who's holier than thou, or a holy roller. Uh, It could just mean religious. I I, I don't know how it lands with you. Here's sort of a simple nutshell way of explaining what holy means in the Bible. It means set apart. Imagine this. uh, Well, you don't have to imagine. You can read it. In the Old Testament, when it talks about building the tabernacle, you know, that was the, the tent... Church for the Israelites in the wilderness before they built the permanent temple building in Jerusalem. When God gives the instructions about how to build the tabernacle, He also gives very, very detailed instructions about the stuff that goes in the tabernacle and that later went in the temple. And He would talk about things like a plate being holy. Now that that should show us something. You know, a plate can't be more moral than the other plates. You know. Plates be like that plate. It's just just neutral. It's a plate. But it's saying that God, in His economy, has said, this one, it's set apart. It is different than the other plates, not because the molecules are different, but because it has been set apart from common use to service to the Lord and only use it there. Don't take it home with you and put it on your own table. That adjective, holy is not only used of God. In the, only, the only place you have an adjective that's used of God, stacked up three in a row, and this is in the Old and the New Testament, to describe God is holy. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. But amazingly, that adjective is applied to people like us. And it's not just something that God has made us. There's a both and here. He has both made His people holy. They're set apart, distinct from the world. Are we better than the world? No. Um, Are we always more moral than the world? No. Hence the statistics. Are we different than the world? Yes. Because of our good instincts? No, because of something that He's done. But holy is also something that we are to live out. Holiness. A living out of being set apart unto Him. Now, that's what Peter's getting at in this text. And I just said, the statistics don't motivate. To browbeat you about... I don't know. I mean, I've never heard this statistic, but the average person cusses this many times a week. And most evangelical Christians cuss this many times a week. I just don't think that changes anyone's language. What is Peter offering as he's urging people to holiness? Two things. Two things. God's people are adopted and God's people are ransomed. God's people are adopted, and God's people are ransomed. First off, adopted. Look, in, look at the first verse, verse 14. And because this is a Bible passage, you can, read, you can just kind of fly past this and not catch the weight of what Peter just said. He's writing to Gentiles. And if you read the New Testament, something that you learn about Peter is he had a tough time with this whole thing about Gentiles being just as much saved by God, just as much saved by the Messiah as the Jewish people who believed in Jesus. That was tough for him. Writing to these Gentiles, he says, as obedient children. And before we go any further, why is Peter saying that? And why is that a big deal? First off, because that is totally supernatural, A real disservice that the church of the 20th century um, did, and I guess the 21st century continues to do, is to describe all human beings as children of God. And therefore, all men and women are brothers and sisters, because that is utterly at odds with the Word of God. And the way that comes across is that it is natural for us to show up and just... By the fact that we showed up and we're human beings, that we're children of God. We show up naturally, according to Ephesians 2, children of wrath, children under an indictment, children bent against God and bent in on themselves. If we have been made children of God, it's supernatural, and it's global. I mean, mean, if you want proof that God can change people over time, the fact that Peter could write to very Gentile people in a very Gentile area and say, as obedient children, meaning of God, God has changed him. He's saying this is something that God is doing all over the world. Think about, from Peter's perspective, Greenville, South Carolina, would be the ends of the earth he may not have known this continent existed. And it's he, there's a room full of people here descended from like crazy Germanic tribes and Celts and stuff like that that kill people, you know, and who knows what else. That like now we love Jesus and we serve Him and we sing about being children of God. He's saying this is this is supernatural and it's global. But there's one other thing you got to remember. If we're adopted... We looked at that a few weeks ago. That's a big deal in the New Testament. That means that we had another family of origin. Okay? No one in this room who's a child of God is naturally a child of God. If we're children of God, it's supernatural, and we all had another family of origin, which means that we showed up kind of genetically, if, if I can, in spiritual terms, genetically predisposed to do what that family does and to further that family's priorities. When we showed up, that's what came naturally. And as lo- until God intervened, that's what we knew. Uh, I, I read an account not long ago of a guy who's a, he's a dean at a uh, Southern seminary. It's a Baptist seminary in Louisville, Kentucky, Russell Moore. And he describes he and his wife going over to adopt two sons from an orphanage in Russia. Now, elsewhere he had described what this facility was like. Very, very sad. And not just sad like, wow, I mean, it's a nice facility, but all these lonely children. It's children that just almost don't look like humans because of the expressions on their faces now. in the facility is nightmarish. These are all over the world. So they walk into one, and they take their two boys. All the the procedure had been done. So for the very first time, they're walking out of this Russian orphanage with their two sons. When my wife Maria and I at long long last received the call that the legal process was over, we returned to Russia to pick up our new sons. We found that their transition from orphanage to family was more difficult than we had supposed. We dressed the boys in outfits our parents had bought for them. We nodded our thanks to the orphanage personnel and walked out into the sunlight to the terror of the two boys. They had never seen the sun. They had never felt the wind. They had never heard the sound of a car door slamming. I noticed that they were shaking and reaching back to the orphanage in the distance. I whispered to Sergey, now Timothy, that place is a pit. If only you knew what's waiting for you, a home with a mommy and a daddy who love you, grandparents and great-grandparents and cousins and playmates and McDonald's Happy Meals. But all they knew was the orphanage. It was squalid, but they had no other reference point. It was home. And what we have got to understand is that if we are children of God, it's not just, oh, man, that's awesome. God, God's like my dad. That, like, you know, it's just kind of this neat personal experience for me. It's saying, no, 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 it is that. It is personal. It is emotional. But that something legally has transpired, that God pulled you out of what you knew, which was a pit. That is the perfect word to describe it. And has brought you out into the sunlight and is moving you toward real family and real love and a real sense of security and a real inheritance, do you know what comes naturally to us? This, I mean, this is who we are. What comes naturally to us is to scream and reach back. I mean, if what we were born into was to be bent against God. And if what what came naturally to us, and maybe even was reinforced in our upbringing, was if you're mad, you explode. And God comes along and says, blessed are the meek. Blessed are the peacemakers. Strive for peace with everyone. You know what? That's all well and good, but if you get mad, what will come naturally is to reach back for the orphanage. Because that's what I knew: Exploding. And we could name the sin, name any disobedience on our part of God's ways, and, that, and it fits. And Peter is saying, you are children of God. And that is not just a little neat religious phrase. That is a supernatural rescue mission to extract you from something horrible, but that was familiar and to bring you out into something that is unfamiliar. But this is life. This is light. This is where you'll have real love and connection. This is where you'll receive an inheritance. And think about this. Look in verse 17. Who is it that's holding you? You know, If you're picturing Russell Moore and his wife Maria, and they're carrying their sons out... And, you know, he's saying to him, no, no, you know, don't reach for that place. Don't reach for that that, that. that place is sad. We're taking you somewhere happy for the rest of your life. When you think about, if you're a Christian, if you think about God being your father, your dad, and you think about Him holding you, saying, no, 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 no. I want something better for you. What do you picture? Do you picture sort of a, for lack of a better way to put it, kind of like a, um overly... Um, permissive dad who spoils his child. Look in verse 17. If you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. What does that mean? God loved us. He burst into this horrible place and he adopted us out of it, because He is so intensely and incredibly loving and merciful. But the thing that we've got to remember is that the dad holding us is a consuming fire. He is holy, holy, holy. And Peter says, you'll be on to something when you understand that you're His child and you fear Him. Now, I don't know how that lands with you, this thing about fearing God. It's a big deal in the Old and the New Testament. Is, is believing in Jesus and all the stuff we talked about, Him taking away your sin, is that something that should make you not fear God? Let me read just uh, two or three verses. This is just a, a smattering. 2 Corinthians one. Let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Philippians 2.12, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. This is by Paul who was all about, you can't save yourselves by your good works. Nobody can. And he's saying, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. What? Fear and trembling that I won't make an A plus and God's going to kick me out. No. Fear and trembling of Him. How does it help me to fear? You know what the reality is? Everybody here already fears. Everybody here already fears. And we're living out of that fear, whatever it is. That's just another way of saying it. You don't say... I've got to start worshiping. Everybody in here is worshiping. The question is what? You know, if you fear other people, you will live out of that. And you will do whatever it takes. You will do whatever exercise. You will read whatever books. You will cut whatever checks. You will purchase whatever. If you live out of the fear of people, you will labor for their approval. Because you fear people and what they think of you. If we are afraid of lack... Now, some of you grew up with means. You've, you've never been afraid of of lack, of want. But some of you have. Some of you, some of you do. If you fear want, you will do whatever it takes. You will stay up late. You will get up early. You will, you will do what it takes to live out of that fear to address it. And Peter's saying this, look, the human heart is going to fear something. You're going to worship something. Bob Dylan, you're going to serve somebody. Fear God. Because here's what's going to happen if you fear God. Number one, your heart will finally be satisfied. And number two, what, what you're going to live out of, if you understand the gospel, is that the reason... That He wants me to be different is not because He's a bully. If God was a bully, trust me, everybody, we'd know it. But because He wants me to reflect His character. What is His character like? He always tells the truth. He's always pure. He's generous. He's gracious. He is slow to anger. He gives good treatment when bad treatment would have been deserved. wants me to live out of that. I'm adopted. He wants like father, like son. Ransomed, quickly. Uh, First off, what does the term mean? When you think ransom, what do you think of? I think of kidnapping and a ransom note. And actually, in the the early church, that was sort of the main way of thinking about what the New Testament means when it says ransomed, that uh, Jesus on the cross, in a way, kind of made a payment to the devil to rescue us. Kind of like Satan had burst in, he had kidnapped us, had us in bondage. Jesus comes in through his life and death, pays off Satan, and now we're ransomed. That doesn't really check out theologically. This term ransomed is brilliant. Because here's the thing, it works for Peter as a Jew, and it works for his Gentile readers... For a Jew, what would ransom mean? It would make them think of the greatest salvation thing ever done before Jesus came. What was that? The Exodus. And over and over and over in the Old Testament Scriptures, that's described as a redemption or a buying or a ransom. It's a freedom from slavery and from exile. For Gentile readers way after that, I mean, almost a millennium and a half after that, what would they think of? They would think of the way that term would be used in their culture. The ending of a slave's servitude by the payment of a price. Being brought out of a life of bondage and servitude by the payment of a price. And for both Peter the Jew and the Gentile readers, this term works. That the work of Jesus Christ ransomed us from what what does he say from look at verse 18 you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers and we kind of wish he had said more about it what are the feudal ways what were their priorities what were they into what were the values he doesn't say he says that at the end of the day what you inherited is empty and you were rescued from it And very interesting to think about. You were rescued from what your forefathers imparted to you. It's another way of saying you're adopted into a new family. What was the payment? Verse 18. Excuse me. Yeah, well, the end of verse 18. Not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. Uh, The word precious doesn't have the punch that it should. It's like what I do with the word awesome. I demean it because I overuse it. Um, you know, I have a friend that uh, when he's talking to me, to be funny and to be ironic, he'll say that something is "precious." That's not the way he really talks. He's impersonating just how that word has been used in our upbringing. It's where it's precious is three syllables instead of two. Like we pronounce it like parana or pariah, you know, that just Do y'all understand what I'm talking about? Okay. I'm just standing up here needing you to listen to me. Uh, But, I mean, we of all people should. I mean, this this is a timely adjective to hear because as there's all this nervousness about the global economy, the value of the dollar, there's just this renewed interest in what? Precious metals. And that's the sense. And and interestingly, Peter says, What redeemed you, what ransomed you, was not those. To those, those are precious. But he says, "You were redeemed. You were ransomed with the most precious substance that's ever been on the earth." It really—it took a long time for that to land in my heart—that there was a physical substance on this earth. It was the most valuable physical substance. It, It was as physical as these bricks. It is the blood of a man who never, ever broke the law or the prophets once in his humanity. And, and what, what will, with God's blessing, what ought to grab us in this is what it says in verse 20. Look, look at the contrast. It says that he was foreknown. He was for What does that mean? It means that Jesus Christ, before the foundation of the world, was loved and doted upon and valued by God the Father. He was that. But then it says this He was then manifest. What does that mean? It means that He was put on display for a fallen world. Picture this. What is somebody who never broke the law and the prophets doing up with no clothes on, bloodied and beaten, and agonizing and yelling up on a cross with a sign over Him that says, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. What is He doing up there on display manifested like that? And verse 20 says exactly why. For the sake of you. And the only thing that really will take away the love of sinning is a better love. We love because He first loved us. We have been rescued from slavery. If you grew up in a home, whatever American larger macro-cultural issues there are, in your home, if you grew up with rage... that God has, in His mercy, ransomed you, you have been rescued with the payment price of the blood of Christ from having to live a life of slavery to rage. If you grew up with dishonesty and manipulation, if you're in Christ, you've been rescued from that. You know, certain upbringings are just fertile soil for becoming for having addictive behavior with whatever. Substances, pornography, serial relationships, just addictive behavior. Some upbringings are really conducive to that. You might have had one. If you're in Christ, you have been ransomed from what will be bondage if you persist in it. And what that means is this. When verse 15 says, "...be holy," in all of your conduct, what we are called upon to, to look and see is, then what's it going to be? Because all is all. If He adopted me, if I'm in the family, if, it, if, it, if it's the blood of Jesus who does it, not under compulsion, but because He loves me, then what does it mean? And to let the light shine on our lives. What are the areas where, we, where if we're honest, holiness is just not on the radar? It's probably so off the radar we can't think of it right now. It could be humor. That's a big one with me. My humor is naturally extremely sarcastic. And the question is, what do the realities of the gospel of loving God and loving people? How do you connect the dots from that to humor, where you can still have humor and still have wit, still get the you know appreciate that something's comical or ironic? but not be hateful? Or is it when I'm under stress? You know, I'm under stress right now, and that's our way of saying, so look, all bets are off on what I might say or do right now. I'll I'll bring it up at the corporate confession on Sunday when we confess our sin. Until then, don't freaking say anything about it to me. When I'm hurting, uh, when I'm lonely, um, I've never not done this. See that's the lie of addiction. If you have an addiction, the addiction almost is like a person going, if you stop being me, you won't be you won't be you. If you stop doing me, you won't be you anymore there, there won't be a you left. What would you be without me? lie lie devil's lie you've been ransomed. Um, I just struggled and struggled about how to bring this in for the ending. I just want to say this, and then we'll be done. Uh, there are not many things in my life that make me say the word, oh. mean, usually, if we would say, oh, it's, that, it's almost ironic, like I'm being melodramatic, you know, oh. I want to read you three places where God says, Oh. And there's a common thread, if we'll hear it. One's from the law, one's from the Psalms, one's from the prophets. Deuteronomy 5, God says, talking about the Israelites, Oh, that they had such a mind as this always, to fear me and to keep all my commandments. Why? So I can keep them under my thumb? That it might go well with them and with their children forever. Psalm 81, Oh, that my people would listen to me. That Israel would walk in my ways. Why? He says, I'm going to condemn my enemies one day, but you, I would give you the finest of the wheat. I'd give you the honey from the rock. Oh, that you would listen. From the prophets, Isaiah 48, Oh, that you had paid attention to my commandments then your peace would have been like a river. The reason God wants us to be holy is not because He's a bully. Guys, the reason that He wants us to put sin to death and to obey His commandments is He wants us to be well. He wants things to go well with us and our children forever. We're saved through faith alone, but a saving faith is never alone. There's lots of Bible, lots of prayer, and lots of worship, and lots of otherness in it. Be holy in all your conduct, if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Father, please take now Your Word. And we ask, Holy Spirit, that where we need conviction, the specific areas where we are not holy in our conduct, or we don't even know where to begin thinking about it, be our help, be our guide, be our teacher. Hold us by our right hand and show us what it means to turn to You. I pray that if anyone here has never, for the first time, turned to Jesus, and known that now they have been adopted into Your family, that now they've been ransomed. Lord, give that to them. Uh, Turn turn them toward Yourself. We pray that might even be in our midst today. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.